All right, good morning everyone and welcome to the second Youth Forum Council of the 2021 to 2022 school year. I'm Adi Kalahasti, a senior at, so at Solon High School and the Community Outreach Coordinator of the City Club of Cleveland's Youth Forum Council. I'm happy to introduce today's forum, a conversation about how the year 2020 and 2021 has sparked massive policy changes in education, many of which will have lasting effects for years to come. As we start to adjust to a new normal after the past year and a half, it's pretty clear to see that society has changed as a result, and nowhere is this more common than in education. The changes were a mix of highlighting innovative ways of teaching kids, but also the ways in which education has fallen short. Prior to this year, the way in which students in the U.S. Has, were educated has remained pretty steady over the past century. However, educators are now taking another look at what can be done to improve learning situations, as well as taking another look at how issues such as declining enrollment and the impact of funding have had an influence as well. Our panelists today to discuss this include, first, Dr. Howard Fleeter, the owner of Howard Fleeter & Associates. He was additionally a former public policy professor at The Ohio State University and a former School of Education professor at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Second, we'll have Dr. Kevin Wellner, a professor in the School of Education at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He is also the author of the book, School's Choice, How Charter Schools Control Access and Control Enrollment. Our final panelist, yet certainly not the least, is Eric S. Gordon, the CEO of Cleveland Metropolitan School District since 2011. Before being CEO, he was Chief Academic Officer for the district for four years. As always, with every forum, you can participate with your questions simply by texting them to 330-541-5794. Once again, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at, at CityClubYouth. I'll be starting off with some of the questions, and then I'll turn it over to Youth Forum Council member Kenji Sake, a junior at the Cleveland Heights University Heights High School. So let's start by jumping straight into the questions. So in what ways has the COVID-19 pandemic essentially shaped education in terms of new policies and new laws put into place? Do you have a preference of who begins? Nope. I think anyone can just jump in. I'll start with a little context here in Ohio. Um, as you said, um, education has looked and felt very, very static and similar for over a decade, uh, over a hundred years in the industrial era model. Um, there's been a quote that if Rip Van Winkle woke up today, the only thing he'd recognize is public schools. Um, and COVID-19 and the shutdown last year uh, really shook the systems. And um, in Ohio, there were a lot of temporary laws put in place that allowed schools to do things, uh, including uh, more mastery-based learning instead of uh, seat time. So, you know, as students that you can get a D minus, but went to school 180 days a year, and that counts as learning, uh, but you could potentially have a B plus, um, but didn't uh, complete the course, and therefore you didn't learn. Um, so things like that. Uh, unfortunately, though, what I'm seeing here in Ohio is an effort to put back in place all of the rigid laws that were in place pre-COVID, as opposed to taking this opportunity to use this as an innovation space at the policy level. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. I, I can just chime in quickly to follow that up. So I'm, I'm probably the, the one person here that's least directly um, involved in being in an actual school building um, over the last year and a half or so. But I mean, I think I would echo what you know Eric said that you know the pandemic you know created the necessity that schools had to function in a different way, 
And, you know, my perception of looking at this and my perception of interacting with the legislature in this state is that there, I think there were some things that um, you know, we, we learned some, you know, we learned the advantages and I think some of the limitations of distance learning, you know, and that that's been something that our legislature has, you know, been pushing for a long time as a way to solve, you know, a lot of problems with rural school districts that don't have access to certain types of, you know, can't provide certain courses, can't find um, certain types of teachers and things like that. And I think we've learned that, you know, we can use that, you know, mechanism, you know, in a way that, you know, that accelerated our use of that mechanism because we had to do it. And I think we learned that it worked in some places. It worked for some kids. It didn't work in some places. But Eric, I mean, I fear that you're right, that there's, you know, there's so much inertia to go back to the way that we used to do things, right, that everybody's comfortable with that. And, um, you know, at least that the old system was the devil that we knew. But I think that we, you know, it created the opportunity to learn how to do things in a different way because we had no choice. And I think that there were some kids that struggled with this. And I think that there were kids that benefited from this. And, you know, if we don't learn the lessons of the last year and a half, we will have, you know, you know, you know, don't, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Right. I mean, this taught us a lot of things and we need to make sure that we learn them. So I would, I, my, one of my first thoughts was, was a point that, that Howard just made, which is that the pandemic uh, shifted, the shift to online learning technologies is certainly one of the obvious impacts. Um, and I think that it's it's important to note that that shift was extremely helpful during the pandemic, but at the same time, as Howard noted, we've seen during the past couple of years, all of the shortfalls and limitations that also come with remote learning. Um, but I wanna briefly note two other um, obvious, I think, impacts. Uh, one, one is that the current embrace, we, we see this, I'm seeing across the country an embrace of policies like trauma-informed practices and socio-emotional learning or SEL. Um, mm -hmm. Now I have my concerns and critiques of how these approaches are being implemented, but I think the basic idea is sound that schools can't pretend that all children need right now or really in past years is the three R's. And I think the pandemic has made that obvious. Um, but similarly, I, I think we're seeing an embrace of, uh, of community schools uh, models of reform. And this approach looks different in different places, but the basic idea is that we're asking our schools to do so much in this country. Uh, so we need to connect them to the resources and the people in their communities to help accomplish some of those, some of those goals. So this means uh, parents, service organizations, businesses, charities, and to some extent it also means that schools themselves need to provide services to children and their families to address needs regarding everything from nutrition and health care to immigration and translation services. Mm -hmm. But it also means, I think, connecting in authentic ways with families uh, to advise and help guide the schools. And the context here is that all of these things are necessary because of something else that the pandemic highlighted, and, and that's the deep inequality in the US. And in this country, as compared to other Western democracies, we have very weak policies to address economic security. And we have this widespread poverty and childhood poverty in particular. 18% uh, of US children live in poverty or live pr prior to the pandemic, might be worse now. Um, but this poverty is not distributed randomly, and I think that's also important to note. So it's 32% for Hispanic children, 37% for Black children. 
So our poverty is racialized, it's often deep, it's often concentrated in particular urban and rural communities. But instead of directly addressing these problems, our policymakers tend to look to the, to the public schools mm-hmm. as the so-called great equalizer, right? Expecting the schools to somehow just make everything okay. And the turn to the community schools model is I think the latest attempt by schools to do just that. Um, and I think the schools are a good idea, but it's unrealistic uh, to expect community schools to truly right. be the great equalizer, uh, particularly with the tight budgets that we provide for education. Right. So kind of playing off that question a little bit, um, something that's obviously been a very specific model that's been used by a lot of universities and schools is the kind of online or hybrid model. So how have some of your experiences with that as well as other factors like the digital gap or lack of broadband access played into the changes of education in the past year? So I think that builds nicely on what we were just discussing because Cleveland, the city of Cleveland and the district I represent has the highest childhood poverty uh, in the country, um, which I think is important for our students in our region to know. We also have the single worst digitally connected city in the country. Um, which means that when the shutdown occurred and many students uh, went online to learn, our students were watching Channel 43 for lessons. We were mailing content to homes, things of that nature, um, and are reconnecting them. Uh, We also are using the community schools model that we just discussed, but in Ohio, it is being done uh, really locally and not at a policy level, at least at this point. Uh, But to the question of of the blended learning, so, you know, we, we as a district now do have one-to-one technology. Uh, tomorrow, we're expecting three to five inches of snow here, and we've already prepared to switch to remote learning tomorrow. Uh, every school has a remote learning plan. Students are reminded to take home and charge their devices. Um, their homework is in Schoology, which is our remote learning platform. So we've been building a new muscle around it. But even here, going to the innovation question, in Ohio, um, the innovation right now at least, is being hampered at the policy level. So we did open a remote school for kids who wanted it, um, but kids have to submit um, activities demonstrating that they met the number of minutes required for a class, as opposed to turning in assignments that demonstrate that they've mastered the content they were expected to learn, right? Um, And what we know out of the best of remote learning was mastery is where kids succeeded, not seat time. And yet that's what we've uh, been asked to do. Another example is that uh, the way Ohio uh, structured it, uh, my remote students can't participate in athletics because they are not coded to a high school that is athletics. That is an easy policy fix. And athletics are part of that whole child experience. um, But under current policy, because we're using existing past policies to guide future innovations, there are really some limits to uh, what we're doing for kids what we should be doing for kids, and then therefore what the students are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, interesting that, you know, two, two things that you said. First, I guess, you know, the uh, enhanced digital learning means the end of the snow day. So, um, you know, that that's, uh, you, know, you know, pros and cons to that, um, you know. So uh, I grew up in Cleveland, so I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, the interesting thing, it's interesting, Eric, what you said about um, the emphasis on the seat time, you know, and the, and the context for that, I think, is ECOT, right? We had a scandal, um, you know, four or five years ago with the largest, you know, online um, community school, which, you know, when they 
you know, peeled enough layers of the onion, realized that it seemed like it was more of a scam than it was an online learning experience. And they did not track, they didn't, you know, they allowed kids to just log in. They didn't have to, you know, they, they, there was, you know, you, you need some oversight, you know, over these things if they're going to work. And this state did not have enough oversight. And so we made a massive mistake that, you know, that involved the end of this school and that they're still litigating how much money they're going to have to pay back. They're not going to get the non-learning from these kids back, right? But at least maybe they can pay some of the money back. But I think that, you know, like a lot of times, you know, policymakers, you know, are fighting the last war. Right. And so, you know, I think the emphasis on the seat time is because they failed in that regard with ECOT. And that was a very large, very public, very embarrassing failure for the state. And so now they're focused on that when maybe they ought to be focused on the mastery part of this. And so hopefully, you know, again, you know, what's going on in the last year and a half is maybe going to accelerate the curve on, on all of this. It's moved fairly slowly. And, and it's interesting that, you know, one of the trends in the last year was that there was a significant, you know, there was a decrease of about 43,000 kids enrolled in the traditional public schools, but there was an increase of over 11,000 kids enrolled in community schools, and most of those were online community schools. I think last year there were a lot of parents that said, okay, if we're going to be online, let's at least, you know, do, you know, instead of having my district figure it out on the run, you know, people made the decision to say, well, I'm going to go with something that's established, right? Hopefully now that it's been cleaned up after the ECOT scandal. There was also a, a very large increase in homeschooling. It looks from the numbers I get, which are not very exact, it looked like it went from about 33,000 homeschooled kids in 2020 to about 50,000 homeschooled kids last year. And so we're expecting that these trends are going to reverse themselves. I think a lot of the um, students who, you know, a lot of the students who went to online learning last year, I expect are going to come back to the public schools. I expect a number of the homeschool kids are going to come back to do that. Last year, families were doing what they could to try and get through a very, very difficult year. And, but again, that experience, I mean, has pros and cons. I think for people who were able to make those decisions, it worked well, but, you know, the connectivity issue was a huge issue in rural areas, right? I mean, there, there, you know, there are, you know, there are school buildings that don't have very reliable um, connectivity. Forget about the, like, you know, the homes where those kids live and whether they have devices and whether they have access to the internet or not. You know, the infrastructure, you know, in a big part of our state isn't there. So, you know, Kevin, the point you made about the inequities, you know, those inequities, I, you know, I think maybe were exacerbated last year due to the difficulty of the circumstances. So, yeah, exposed, exposed at the very, very least. Right, right. Yeah. So, so playing playing that, that, we're getting an echo, I think. Are we? Yeah. Just, yeah, I'm hearing an echo. I think it's gone now. So actually playing off that excellent example of ECOT. So Dr. Wellner, obviously you've done some research when it comes to charter and community schools. So how are some of the ways in which, for example, those kind of sectors of education have adapted in the past year and a half? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was speaking earlier about community schools, and I had forgotten that that's the term used in Ohio for charter schools. So it's sort of confusing. There's a there's community school reform nationally refers to this, um, what I was describing about sort of the, a, a school that's connected to the community and providing wraparound services and that sort of thing. Um, I'm going to speak of charter schools instead of community schools when I when I discuss Ohio's uh, charter schools because or community schools um, because it's confusing otherwise to me at least. Um, but yeah, I mean, ECOT. I, sh I should note that ECOT is not alone. Um, you know, there there have 
been uh, similar scandals around the country and a variety of other concerns about the quality of education provided by uh, online education. But again, given the, the, the crisis of the last um, couple of years, it was really quite a good thing to have that as, a, as an available tool as a fallback. But, but yeah, there are, there are clear limitations. And I would, I would note in response to the last question also before I, I get to, to, your, to, the, to the most recent, is that it's not just about technology in terms of a student trying to learn online. Um, there are these, these clear technology barriers in terms of access to the curriculum and to the broadband, excuse me, to the, to the equipment and the broadband. But to learn well, depending on the age of the child, to, to learn well at home also requires having a parent there to help. It requires having a quiet space to learn, right? There are these, these other elements that, that are really important, not just somehow having a device and broadband and hoping that the, the child will learn. Um, the the questions uh, the question about about charter schools um, and and how well how well they they have they have uh, done over the past year um, it looks like out outside of the online charter schools and I should note that 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 two two companies uh, Connections Academy which I think is fairly big in in Ohio and what used to be called K twelve Inc and is now called stride or something like that um th they dominate the uh the the field of of online education and they they dominate mainly through charter schools um and so what we've seen primarily is a shift for for the parents who are scrambling a shift in the last couple of years to those uh those companies in particular um to provide some uh educational support for kids at home um what we know is that the results in the past have been very poor for those uh, for those companies and for online education in general. Um, when we look at test score outcomes and at persistence, uh, you know, kids staying with the companies, there's a lot of transiency. Kids sort of checking out, <laughs> checking back in occasionally, then going back to their local public schools, having fallen behind. Um, so it's it's not a good record, but again. It, it was an important resource to have available. Um, charter schools in general are a sector that involves a lot of variety, a lot of difference among schools. There are some that provide extraordinarily good opportunities to learn and, and some that provide criminally bad opportunities to learn. Um, and so it's, it's a sector, right? It's a sector, if you think about a normal curve, they fall along that curve. Um, and some schools really stepped up and did, did amazing things with their kids, um, and, and some really struggled. Um, my, my work, the, the book that you mentioned uh, at the outset during the introductions, is primarily focused on issues of access. Um, charter schools are statutorily part of a public school system in, in the state. So the, they are framed as these schools are public schools. They're part of the public school system. And yet a lot of them behave as private schools in terms of shaping access, denying access, placing barriers to access, and differentially doing so. So some kids are, are more beneficial for charter schools, right? The, the ones who come in with richer opportunities to learn outside of schools, the one, ones who come in with fewer expensive special needs, that sort of thing. And so... Charter schools have often found ways to shape their enrollment, shape their access, control their enrollment, so that um, they have 
not just students who enroll, but the right students who enroll. And that, that's the issue that I've, that I've been investigating. So actually kind of segueing through that kind of disparity angle, um, how have issues such as, for example, redlining particularly affected schools, especially when it comes to things like enrollment as well as graduation? So I, I I saw this question earlier, right when when it was submitted, and I've been thinking about it since then, right? And I haven't, you know, I've I've been working on school finance in Ohio for you know, almost thirty years now, right? And you know, there are, you know, tremendous inequities between wealthier school districts and less wealthy school district, right? That like every you know, other state, you know, we rely on local property taxes and then we have a state aid formula that tries to equalize for the inequities, right? And, and you know, the, you know, the, the issue when, you know, we talk about vouchers or charters, you know, charter schools that we call community schools here, right? That, you know, when those first came about, one of the arguments for them was an equity argument, right? That they were going to give more options to low-income kids that are stuck in neighborhoods with lousy schools, Right. And then try to, you know, provide them, you know, choice. And, you know, it, it, you know, so we talk about school choice now. School choice isn't a new thing. School choice has been, you know, in existence for over 150 years. Right. What traditional school choice is, is that people, if they don't like the school district that they're in, they can move to another community that, that is more to their liking. They can use their own money and send their kids to a private school. Both of those things, though, require a certain level of affluence in order to exercise either of those things, right? Either of those options, right? That the better school districts tend to have, um, they, they tend to have more expensive houses. They tend to have zoning regulations, which put a minimum lot size so that if you're a lower income person, you can't buy a small house on a, on a small lot. You have to buy the houses that are there. They restrict, you know, the multifamily options and things like that. So, you know, those are things that are all legal. Redlining is illegal, not allowing certain people to live in certain places. But the effect of redlining is the same as the market inequities that we've seen that wealthier people have more choices over their kids' schooling than, than less wealthy people. So when we first started talking about vouchers and charter schools, the first voucher program you know, in Ohio was in Cleveland. I think it was one of the first three voucher programs in the country, right? I mean, it targeted a, you know, a district with a lot of low-income people, with a, with a lot of struggling schools, and it was really argued, there, the initial arguments were equity arguments for that, and the same for, you know, for charter schools. What we've seen with vouchers lately in Ohio is they've pretty much abandoned the equity arguments, right? They're now talking about a bill that would give, um, that, that would give a voucher to every student, you know, every private school student, regardless of their family's income, and every homeschool student. Right, that there that the policy goals have morphed from enhancing equity and you know doing something to create more options because the system that we have can create significant impediments to families that are trying to get their kids into a school that they think is good for them. We've you know that's not the direction that Ohio is going anymore, right? And community schools were supposed to provide a free option for that, right? It's a public school that you can go to, you know, and as and as Kevin said, you know, the results and you know, there's some very good charter schools in the state of Ohio, and there's some very bad charter schools in the state of Ohio. And when you look at the performance data, there's a lot more um, bad charter schools than there are good charter schools, right? But, you know, there we have expanded the options, but, you know, the, that, that was my sense of like the redlining question was really like what, that was an, 
that was an equity bias question, right? And even without redlining, we have an equity and bias that is built into the system that we have because of the way it works. And so, you know, that that's, you know, that's why it's so important that we get our state school funding formula right, right? Because the whole goal of that is that it's the state's responsibility, according to our constitution, to provide a thorough and efficient system of common schools for every student, okay? Regardless of where they live. And we've been fighting that battle since 1997 when we had our um, Supreme Court decision. Yeah, and so I, the redlining question um, is complicated without understanding what redlining actually was. It was one of four colors used to uh, mark up maps to guide where investment should and should not occur based on the premise of whether banks would get their money back, essentially, right? And it did a lot of the structural things that, that you've learned and talked about. But um, I think when, you, when we talk about redlining, we really have to understand red, yellow, green, and blue lining and understanding the, the way it was used to drive resources. And it was a federal government program at the time that actually did it. A much more modern example, though, that is real right here in the city of Cleveland is the digital infrastructure. Uh, so you heard about it in the rural communities, but it's also real in cities. So we, um, at, you know, we made a commitment to ensure every one of our students and their families had um, internet access um, be because it should be a public utility and available to everyone. And so right now I'm paying thousands of dollars to have hotspots in homes. So we made a partnership with a local provider um, and said that, you know, with that provider, we will give you our address map and then we will ship uh, modems to every home that can connect to your system. So I have 36,000 students. I have about 27,000 homes. They were only connected to 5,500 homes in the city of Cleveland out of the 27,000 possible. What does that mean? It means all of those other homes have no physical connection in the city of Cleveland to the internet. And why might that be? Well, it wasn't profitable to pull cable into the city where people couldn't afford to pay for internet as opposed to pulling it into more affluent com communities where people are not only paying for it, but paying high speed, paying for extra packages, paying all these other things, right? So there, so there are both policy implications like the, the redlining system, um, but there's also you know, the economic incentives. And I think it was Kevin who said earlier that our country has not taken an aggressive stance at uh, social equalizers uh, you know, one of the things that we just went through, as anybody who's watched Northeast Ohio TV, we went through a mayoral election. Uh, number one issue was safety. Number two was schools. And the question around schools was, there's been a lot of progress. The graduation rate went from 52% to 81%. Is it enough? Well, no, it's not enough, right? Um, but it did it at the same time that the social indicators for children didn't move at all. It did it in a case where Children, we still have the highest childhood poverty by census data, 10 years in a row. We bat it back and forth with Detroit. No interconnect connectivity year after year after year. Ninth most racially segregated city. My community is 86% people of color. Um, so, so no, it's not enough, but as long as we, and I think Kevin, you said it earlier, as long as we keep expecting schools to solve the social problem, instead of attacking the social inequities that are caused by perverse incentives to make money or policies that direct resources, we're going to keep finding ourselves in these traps. Um, and now I say that as, a, and to clarify the community school question, Cleveland has adopted a whole human learning model. 
So our schools, we don't call them community because of the community confusion. We call them wraparound schools. We provide a social worker that's connected to the 211 database for every basic need. We provide legal services to our students and their families so that if a custody issue comes up or uh, you get your landlord has a dispute and is trying to evict you, I can help my kids and families. We have partnered with medical professionals for integrated health in our schools. Uh, we are you know, partnering with our city for out of school time activities to keep kids into healthy, engaging things. I think those are all things schools should be a part of, but I think it, that it's an investment done not because we should save the city, but because my students are citizens of the city and the city and the county should be investing in the larger social indicators. And I think that's what really sits behind these redlining questions is how are we, and particularly you as young people who are going to be the next leaders, uh, how are you going to, to tackle things that we have failed to address for you know, decades. Um, Cleveland, just two final things. The voucher program in Cleveland is the second oldest in the country. Milwaukee and Cleveland did it at the same time. The reason it happened in Cleveland is because desegregation, forced busing had failed. We started forced busing in Cleveland four years after it had already failed in Detroit. We knew it didn't work and forced it in Cleveland anyway. And that's when Cleveland plunged into poverty. There's still a PBS Frontline video that you can watch about the collapse of Cleveland and it's tied to racial busing. And it wasn't white flight. People attribute it to white flight. It was wealth flight. No one wanted their children to be in what they perceived as a hostile environment. Black families don't want that. Hispanic families don't want that. And so, you know, the choice market was driven as we heard. There's always been choice. The choice was get out of Cleveland because I'm not sending my child across town into this hostile environment. Um, the choices got easier over time, but those are all, you know, policy decisions made by people before you that had very, you know, deliberate implications about where resources went and who got them. And, and until we address that problem, and I really count on you and the people on this forum to do it, uh, we're not going to solve these problems. I want I want to quickly build on on the points that that Eric and, and Howard made around around redlining, and I think I I wanted to jump in and speak to this because of the national push right now to not mention or discuss structural racism in our schools. Right. Redlining is a very clear example of structural racism, and it's not just history; it, it accounts for so much of what we currently see. And so when 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 Eric is describing the um, the nature of redlining and the, and the federal role. Basically it was, if you happen to be wanting to buy a home in an area that we circle red, you know, in, in one of these redlined areas, which by the way meant there are a lot of non-whites here, particularly not particularly members of the black community. Well, then, then we're not gonna guarantee that loan. We're basically, we're not gonna provide the loan. We're, not, we're gonna prevent home loans in this area. Mm -hmm. And that drove down property values in areas where black people can live. Um, there was an analysis just a few years ago by the Brookings Institute that found that uh, owner-occupied homes in Black neighborhoods are undervalued by $48,000 per home on average, amounting to $156 billion in cumulative losses across the country. So all of this is, is it's not just redlining, it's complicated by the fact that uh, multiple racist Okay, I'm getting an echo again, hopefully, that multiple racist practices were at play um, involving redlining, but also involving steering by realtors and restrictive covenants in, in deeds. 
But one result, in addition to the lost wealth, was communities of concentrated poverty, right, with direct and, and indirect impact on schools. And, and, you know, that's, it's relevant to our lives today, right? It's very, it's very important to our lives today to understand that these things didn't just happen. Um, they happened because of government policies. I know we need to go to break, but just to build this one final point, people often uh, say to particularly children in poverty, like my students, that education is your way out of poverty. It is not. It is a tool on your way out of poverty, but ownership is your way out of poverty. When you can get a loan against capital you own, typically a home, that's when you've physically exited poverty. You can actually get a loan to send your child to school. You can do other things. But when you live in communities where you can't get the loan or the value of your home is so deflated compared to everybody else, it even reinforces keeping communities stuck in poverty in that way as well. I know we've got to go to break. Sorry about that. No worries. Um, thank you all so much for those amazing responses. Um, at this time, I'd like to introduce Zoe Ellenbogen to quickly take over for our mid-form speaker. Hello, as you said, I'm Zoe Ellenbogen. I'm a junior at Shaker Heights High School and I'm a member of the Youth Forum Council. To review before we get into the Q&A, today's Youth Forum Council talk is talking about how the year 2020 sparked massive policy change, education, and the long-term effects of that. To review, today's panelists are Dr. Howard B. Fleener, uh, Eric S. Gordon, Dr. Kevin G. Wellner, and our moderator is Aditya and Kenji Sake, who are seniors at Solon High School, they will be leading the Q&A. If you have questions for any of our panelists, you can text them to 330-541-5797. That's 330-541-5797. You can also tweet them at City club youth. We'll try and work them in. Back to Aditya and Kenji. May we have the first question, please? Hello, uh, my name is Kenji Sakaya. I'm a junior at Cleveland Heights High School, and I'm going to be moderating for the first question. Thank you for the introduction, and I'd like to welcome everybody to this City Club Youth Forum panel. Let's begin our discussion. Was there a time in Ohio in Ohio when the state legislature ever fully embraced its constitutional mandate to fully fund and provide a system as perfect as could be devised, as the writers of the Ohio Constitution intended. It seems they've instead made the jobs of public schools more difficult rather than being collaborative. Anybody in particular? I can, take, I can take the first crack at that. Um, so, um, you know, the, the you know, they, you know, Ohio was founded in 1803, right? I mean, that the, you know, I was just at a presentation at the OSU Law School a couple of weeks ago, and, um, you know, we talked about policies that were set in 1861, I think, right? That, you know, we, we go, you know, the structure of how we, you know, how we deliver and fund education has been the same for, you know, more than a century and a half here. And we have, you know, the, the challenge in Ohio, we have 609 school districts, which is a lot. Right. And this is a state where we, you know, we value local control. We have, you know, I think over 15,000 units of government in this state. We have 88 counties. We got 251 libraries. We've got 1,500 townships. We've got 600 school districts. Right. We, we, we value local control. 
And local control has a lot of advantages. It keeps people in touch with their services. But the downside of local control is the inequities it creates between places. Right. And we've got wealthy places and poor places. And, you know, even if we had county school districts like they do in a lot of southern states, we have 88 counties and that there are poor counties and that there are wealthy counties. Right. So we are always going to have inequities. Right. And, and, you know, the idea that, you know, as Eric said, you know, education is one of your, you know, it, it is not the only thing that you need to get out of poverty. But, you know, it's always been viewed in this country as, you know, the, as the leveler. This is your opportunity to move yourself up the ladder. And it's the only, K-12 education is the only state service that's explicitly mentioned in this state's constitution. And so the problems that we have, you know, is, you know, we elect the legislature and that they allocate the state revenues across all the different functions of government, but not all those functions are equal. Education is primary because it's mentioned in the Constitution. And, you know, we, we struggled with this, you know, for most of the last century and a half. And in 1997, we finally got a Supreme Court decision, the DeRolf decision, that said our system of school funding was unconstitutional. And we've been struggling in the 24 years since then to respond to that decision. And, you know, the way I describe this is that you know, I, I started looking at school funding in Ohio in 1991. So over the last 30 years, we've had 13 years where we've had a method of determining how much a basic education costs for different types of kids. And that's the first first thing we need to do to get, you know, to, to make, you know, if it's fully embraced the constitutional mandate, we need to figure out what it types to it what it takes to educate the typical kid and then students that aren't typical, that they have additional needs because of their circumstances, right? And so we were not doing that at all, really, until um, the DeRolf decision. And, you know, we tried over a 13-year period several different methods of figuring out what it costs, okay? And then the recession hit and we kind of lost the thread of that. The last 10 years, we've only really, you know, the last 12 years, we've only had four years with a functioning school funding formula. We finally now have a new school funding formula in place, and it's going to take a six-year phase-in, but our legislature is only committed to the first two years of the phase-in. So, I mean, I think we're at a very crucial point right now in being able to answer this question, which is I think that there is a segment of the legislature which is really finally taking this seriously again after taking a 10-year break, and there's another sector of our legislature which is more focused on vouchers than they are on public schools. So, um, you know, I was asked a question in a presentation I made last week about what is the legislature going to do and what's my guess. My guess is that if, if the people who don't really want to continue investing in public schools in Ohio, pull the plug on our new funding formula in two years, they better have a very, very viable alternative in its place. Or I don't, I, you know, I, I, I do not think that they're going to be able to get away with it, right? If you ask, if you ask an average person in this state one word about education, they would probably say unconstitutional, right? I mean that that is that. Twenty four years later, that is sad, right? I mean that 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 is the case, right? But I think it is up to, you know, people who value public education in Ohio to send a very clear message over the next two years that we need to stay on the path that we're on, because we deviated from the path, and. Um, and, you know, I think everyone understands that the legislature needs to ultimately fix this. Even if we have another lawsuit, the courts don't decide this issue. They always kick it to the legislature to determine how to fix it. 
So, you know, again, I think, you know, that that's the best answer I can give to this question right now. I think that there are people taking this seriously, but I'm worried that it's not enough. So, I'm getting that echo. So connecting it to our earlier conversation also, it is also a reflection of values. So, you know, CMSD, our cost per pupil is $11,000 per student. And again, the poorest city in the country. Um, and the cost to put somebody in prison for a year is $100,000. So we're spending $100,000 to uh, take care of the people we failed to educate well, forget about public assistance systems and everything else. And we also know, again, through redlining data, that communities who have high wealth in their schools and in their community have much larger outcomes than solving it through funding externally, state or federal funding. So we've got to get at these social determinants issues. Um, but there's a trap in this, right? Philosophically, we have to believe that education is worth the 12-year investment at a much bigger dosage. Um, and we also have to get out of the, the trap we're in as a country of spending so much money taking care of people we failed to educate well for the rest of their life instead of getting that deep dose for a short 12, 13, 14 years, which is a small part of our life to make sure that we're well-educated, contributing to the tax system instead of taking from the system. So we've got an upside down system. And I think we have to challenge what we actually believe in and what we truly value uh, in, in the education space. Think about how much people with means pay private schools for their education compared to what we fund in the public school setting is just an example of values as well. There, there's a theme that's, that's been emerging, I think, in the last 45 minutes around the connectedness of schools to their communities, um, that we can't just in an isolated way think about schools. And I think the, the issue that when you have a constitutional guarantee, and, and all, all 50 states have an education clause in their in their constitution, when, when you have a constitutional guarantee for for a, an education of a certain level, the next question is, well, what what is that level, right? So the DeRolf case, one of the Supreme Court tasks is to come up with a standard. The thing is, if we if we have a system like like the U.S. where the where the welfare state is largely abandoned, and we start to, we try to educationalize the welfare state, we try to expect the schools to be the great equalizer and step in to provide all these things that Eric was talking about. I mean, if someone came came over from one of the other Western democracies and heard Eric talking about why all all these things that are provided through the Cleveland schools, the, the obvious question is, well, why why the schools? This, 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 isn't, this isn't the three R's, right? This isn't what we think about schools, but we, but we ask the schools to do all these things because we aren't asking larger society to do them. So if we aren't asking larger society to do those things and those resources are expected to come through the school system, that to me impacts the standard that we're at, that we're trying to apply to a constitutional guarantee, right? If all the schools are, are being asked to do is the three R's, then the funding should just be for the three R's. But if we're asking schools to also provide all these social services and all these extras that society isn't providing, then we need to provide additional resources to school, schools for those things. So even if Howard is, you know, keeps his fingers crossed and the legislature steps in and does everything that the court would want them to do, it's still going to fall far short of what's needed to fund schools as we ask schools to, to play this role in society. Okay. I mean, we, we've finally, in the last couple of years, I think that all of a sudden dawned on people, right? That you, you can't just pretend um, that, 
you know, schools are in this silo and that they're expecting them to solve every social problem that we have, you know, and, and so, you know, if, if you do the math on 180 days of school, six and a half days, six and a half hours a day, right, and, you know, that's about a quarter of the time that a typical student is awake during a year, right, and you're expecting in a quarter of that time schools to offset things that are and aren't happening in the rest of the student's life, that just doesn't, that's not, that's completely illogical to expect right. um, that, you're going to be able to change the outcome, or at least it's going to take an extraordinary amount of resources to do that. And, you know, we finally, two years ago, Governor DeWine came up with the um, Student Wellness and Success Funds, which for all the things that Kevin talked about, you know, a half hour ago, right, when you talked about the community schools, what we call wraparound schools, and all these other services, you know, we finally realized, you know, that even if we solved the school funding problem the way that DeRolf left it to us of what does it cost to educate and you know, just to educate kids if we're not affecting the circumstances that those kids are bringing with them when they walk into the school building every day we've got a very significant uphill struggle and we're finally understanding we need to do it but kevin you're exactly right right that nobody would went no one would purposefully invent the system that we have right now Right. If you could do it another way, we wouldn't do it. Right. And I hear, you know, and not so much anymore, but 10, 15 years ago, I used to hear all the time about how we spend so much more than, you know, European countries and we don't do as well. And then to say, well, if you count all the spending that they make on social services and things like that, we actually spend less. But, you know, their spending occurs in a different pile than our spending occurs. Right. And so, again, you know, we wouldn't invent this system if we could start from scratch right now, but it's the system that has evolved over time. And so we either have to work as hard as we can to offset it, or we really need to try and fundamentally change it, or probably both those things at the same time. Right. 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 You're echoing. I, I can step in briefly and just say the research on um, that tries to allocate the the um, different. So if you if you if you look at the outcomes for students, the test score outcomes, for example, and try to figure out well what's driving those outcomes, research going going back to the 1960s uh, documents again and again that it's outside of school opportunity gaps that are driving those outcomes much more than the differences between schools are driving those outcomes. Um, and so when we think about, for example, the relief money that just came in from the federal government over the last couple of years, um, my guess is that the relief money that everything from the stimulus payments to the, to the money that that's a child tax credit payments, things like that, that all the, all the money designed to address childhood poverty is going to have a bigger impact on students' educational outcomes than the money, vitally needed money, I should add, that's going to the schools, right? So both of them are important, but addressing larger issues of childhood poverty uh, will probably be, be more impactful. Certainly. So continuing with that um, kind of theme of kind of state legislatures or even school administrations, what are some of the ways actually that they've brought about changes or possible improvements for actually immigrant communities for things like, for example, ESL or classes specifically directed at those kind of students? Yeah, so I'll start there um, because we're really proud of our multicultural, multilingual community here in Cleveland. Uh, we actually uh, were one of the first in the country to open a immigrant newcomer center 
uh, where when you are a new student, um, new child in Cleveland, uh, refugee or immigrant, uh, you start in our uh, newcomer center uh, where we very explicitly protect home language and home culture while helping students acquire uh, American culture and English language. Um, and so, you know, that means teaching in very different ways as well. And so one just really explicit example is that was one of the first district, uh, one of the first schools in the district that we out, uh, outfitted with smart boards, you know, like um, the, the touch screen smart boards. Why would that be? Well, the, one of the ways we were teaching young people to protect their home culture and their home language and learn our culture and language was uh, through geography. And so we would uh, say to students, you know, we would zoom from Google World into Lake Erie and say the word lake. And then we would have students come up from the various cultures that we represent and have them zoom out and zoom to their home and teach their classmates the word for lake in their home language, and then zoom back out and zoom into Lake Erie and get lake reinforced in English language. And so it allows that community to be sharing each of their cultures, each of their languages in a protective space uh, where you know so often immigration was about how do you acculturate. We, we actually wanna value and lift up that diversity. Um, it also is another example, and we haven't talked a lot about it, but you've heard me allude to it, that we have opportunities to shift away from time being the, uh, the constant and learning being the variable to really mastery-oriented learning. English learners is another example. And so, for example, um, there's a law in Ohio that it's kind of a well-hidden and underused law about credit flexibility. So we had all of our... Um, native language speakers sit for their language exam course. And if they pass the language exam course, we gave them credit for the course instead of saying, well, you got to sit 180 days and 45 minutes a day for Spanish one when you're already fluent in Spanish because you just arrived from Puerto Rico where that's your home language, right? So there's there, this, these are opportunities uh, for us to look at um, what are the ways in which we've served English learners well and how do we apply those learnings? Last thing I'll say to this is there's some really important nas national literature now uh, that the best English language instruction for EL students, English learner students, also has dramatically improved impacts on children of color who are from America. And it's because they're, they're good practices, but we learn those practices in the specialized community. All right, so our next question is, how is the recent federal funding from COVID being used to improve schools or how is it earmarked for improving schools in the future? Okay, that's a really complicated one. Um, so there are three different federal relief bills, you know, passed three different, three different times and they're on three different timetables and they come with three different sets of rules. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, broader context to that. Uh, for the most part, they're designed to be, um, to be flexible and to be locally decided. Um, so most of the money will be decided at a school district level. Actually, maybe I should ask Eric, like, wh how, are, how are you all deciding that in, in Cleveland? Yeah, so first of all, I think it was really important to point out three sets of rules for three sets of money. Um, <laughs> that makes it very complicated. It also connects to the first question you asked at the top of the hour about policy. So we are all really grateful for the resources. I was actually a chair of a national organization of superintendents uh, who urged Congress to pass uh, these significant dollars 
early on in the pandemic, and they actually did. What I think Congress failed to do was to examine the federal policy context in the same way I think we need to examine uh, local or state policy context. And so the money is short-term money that has to be spent very quickly under the current structure of education, which for many cities, I think is gonna limit innovation and opportunity. Uh, we're also, as, as superintendents being counseled, don't place long-term bets on short-term money. So don't do things that are going to have long-term impact if it involves continued spending and people, right? Now I'll tell you in Cleveland, we're taking a very different tact. We're making some big bets. So we used our dollars, for example, to launch a uh, what we called the summer learning experience, which was a um, morning session to finish unfinished learning and reading math and credits a midday session of where students were engaged in four week projects that they then demonstrated their learning on at the end of that experience in front of their family and their friends and panels. And then a afternoon of out of school time activities to get re-socialized with kids and families. And we had 8,400 students participate, which is our typical summer schools, 1,500. Uh, so big, big investment for us. We used it to expand art, music and physical education by adding more time before and after the pre-K eight day. Uh, we used it to put more out-of-school time in place. Uh, we're using it to incentivize more mastery-based learning with our kids and our staff. We hired students to be student ambassadors. Um, so uh, to, you know, go find their friends. We, we had high school students um, helping us go find high school students who had kind of stopped out during the remote and hybrid learning. So there's a lot of ways because of the flexibility that we can use these dollars uh, to, in really robust ways. Um, but because the, the policy environment and the short-term nature of it, there's a lot of school districts that are being cautioned to be very conservative about any of those kinds of innovations they might make. The, the Learning Policy Institute, um, which is Linda Darling Hammond's organization, uh, has put out some really nice guidance on this. And one of the things that I think they've pointed out is that the money has to be essentially earmarked within certain time limits, but it could be spent for a couple of years after that, just owing to a, additional, a, a different set of federal laws, if I understand correctly. Um, so it can be, it can be, there's a little more flexibility built in than I think Congress might've even intended um, in terms of the timetable. But but it is it is very difficult. I think uh, I forgot how Eric worded it, but it was uh, exactly I think what I would say. You you don't want to start up something with money that's going to disappear um, if you if it's going to require sustained sustained spending. But I also would say that um, finding ways to build in or to to change the infrastructure of a district so that long-term needs can be addressed with long-term budgets is probably also the trick. So using the community schools, not, not charter schools, but the community school uh, model as an example, um, finding ways to, to use that money to, to change the way schools are, are structured so that they are more connected to their communities um, with the initial investment being upfront, but then the longer term spending being really much more about um, how the money is spent, how, the, how a, given, a given set budget is spent to sustain those commitments that have been built or those connections that have been built. It's probably the, I, I would argue that's the best way of going, going forward. Um, there, are, there are summer school needs, tutoring needs, other things that, that are 
crucial immediate needs for a lot of students who are coming back from experiences in the pandemic. But I think there's also a, an opportunity here with a, with a historic influx of money um, to maybe change some of those things going back to, I think, Eric's first response about you know someone coming down and saying the only thing that hasn't changed is schools. I actually think schools have changed a little more than that, but, <laughs> but we have an opportunity now to make some changes to address the students' needs um, that we really wouldn't have had without this, without this relief money. Right. I, I just want to jump in quickly, just an echo that. Right. I mean, you know what you said about, you know, the summer experience. I mean, there's Johns Hopkins has a summer learning institute, which, you know, the, the data they have from that is startling. Right. That, you know, in a typical year, you know, a student, you know, a, a low income student um, can lose two months of learning just over the summer between, you know, June 1st and September 1st. And then if you think about how that might play out over a year and a half of a pandemic, that's frightening. You know, and at the same time, when they looked at, you know, wealthier students, that they were staying where they were moving ahead over the summertime. Right. And so there's a, you know, that our school calendar creates learning loss. Right. And then when you think about the pandemic, multiplying that by maybe, you know, a factor of four or five, you know, I, I tell people, you know, I mean, I hear legislators talk about, you know, Ohio got about five billion dollars in federal money. What are they going to do with it all? It's like, you know, I have no concerns that districts are going to have very good uses for that money. I'm more concerned about what Eric said, that what's going to happen when the money runs out. I mean, I have at least a bit of, again, unintentional, perhaps good news on the part of the legislature that in their phase into the new funding formula, they phased in all the components at one sixth in the first year and one third in the second year, except the money for economically disadvantaged students, which they phased in at zero, no increase this year, and 14% the next year. And they gave a explanation as to why they did that that didn't make any sense. And I suspect the reason they did it was they saw all this federal money and a lot of it flows to the districts which have high concentrations of poverty. And they thought there's no need for us to you know, accelerate the state money right now. They may have unintentionally, Eric, created a little bit of a glide path for you as the federal money runs out because if they continue with the formula, they're gonna be backloading that economically disadvantaged funding. And so they may, that can fill a little bit of the hole when the federal money runs out. So that's a rare bit of school funding optimism from me, so. so. Well, if that's everything, unfortunately, that appears to be the end of our time for today. So I will now pass it back to Abigail, our uh, closing speaker. Thank you, everyone. Wow. Today, we have been enjoying a youth forum focused on reimagining education post-COVID-19. I'm Abigail Orisanya, a member of the Youth Forum Council, and we are so glad that you joined us. City Club Youth Forums are sponsored by AT&T with additional support from the Doris C. Mikalski Trust. We are grateful for their continued support. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, Key Bank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, PNC, and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on the website at cityclub.org. You can join them in supporting that work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. Be sure to join us on December 9th for our next virtual youth forum titled Missing But Not Forgotten, Navigating Missing Persons Investigations in the US. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Dr. Howard Fleeter, Eric Gordon, and Dr. Kevin Wellner. Thank you, Aditya Kalahasti and Kenji Sakai for moderating 
and thank you to every one of you who tuned in. This forum is now adjourned. Yeah.